You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning, City Church. It's really my honor to be here this morning. Uh, My name's Josh. I had the pleasure to be here a couple of years ago and preach during the summer as you guys were going through the Psalms. And I'm so thankful to be back today as we look at the book of Job. Before I start, I want to say a thank you again. I said it in the first service. I'm so thankful for this church, uh, your pastor, Dean over the past few years has become such a good friend of mine, a dear friend really, not just in ministry but just in life. Uh, And he's someone uh, that I think so highly of and care a lot about. His family is so dear to our family. I'm so thankful for your church. You have an incredible staff and team. Uh, Whenever we go to conferences and things where uh, our churches are sister churches, if you will, and the convention of churches that we're a part of uh, that do ministry together and send missionaries and do church planning. And whenever I get to see them, I always find myself over with the City Church crew kind of running as an honorary member and hanging out with them. You're so blessed. And then such an incredible congregation of people uh, who are so faithful to serve this community so well. I'm thankful as a pastor over the years we've had several of our North Jack students come. They go to Florida State and the only place that we send them is here to City Church and you care for them well. And uh, when they come back, they've had such an incredible experience. So thank you so much for your investment in my family and in our church. And it really is my honor to be here. And I don't take lightly that Dean gave me this opportunity. It's a big deal uh, when the pastor lets Somebody else preach, and I don't take that lightly. But if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Job. We'll be jumping around a little bit. And as we come to the book of Job, Job is clearly all about suffering. It's about the suffering that we experience as humans. And I can tell you that as a pastor, uh, one of the things that uh, as I've gone through ministry, I've been a, a pastor for a little over 15 years now. And one of the things that I struggle with the most is when you see instances, and there's been countless numbers of them, of human suffering that doesn't seem to be fair. Uh, when you look at somebody, a man or a woman, who has, is extremely generous, uh, they're, they're a person of great integrity, and they end up losing their job, losing their business, going bankrupt. When you see a, a set of gentle, godly parents who have loved their children well, poured the word of God into them, raised them to know the things of God, and then they watch that child turn their back on their faith, walk away and abandon it completely. Uh, When you see a faithful spouse who is loving the Lord and loving their spouse and then the partner in that marriage abandons them and walks away and and leaves them there holding the pieces of this broken marriage. When you see a godly saint who loves the Lord and has walked faithfully following Jesus, when you see them taken too soon by an incurable disease, you see all of these things happen. And you may have stuff that is happening in your own life and you're just going, this just doesn't seem fair. And when you're in those moments, whether it's happening to you or someone you love or someone you know, you can start to look at the Bible and go, does any of this stuff actually work? I know it works on Sunday. I know it makes for good sermons. Uh, I know it makes for great songs that we sing. But in my life, day to day, does this stuff work? So the book of Job, it addresses the complexities of life in a way that ultimately I'm so thankful because it brings us back to our faith in God. You see, Job answers this big question. How do we make sense of our suffering? Now, the author of Job is unknown. We don't know exactly who wrote it. There's some ideas, but we don't. I've got like less than 40 minutes to go through 42 chapters of Job, so we're not going to spend 10 minutes arguing about who wrote it. But it's in God's word, and it's been preserved. And we know uh, that the story is true. 
We know that it's true because it's referenced in several other portions of Scripture. You find it referenced in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. You find it referenced in the book of James over in the New Testament as well. And where it fits in the narrative of the biblical story, uh, if you were to look at the timeline, if you will, Job fits right around the end of Genesis chapter 11, kind of after Adam but before Abraham. Uh, We know this because there's clearly a civilized society that's taking place here uh, where there's, there's business and there's trade and he's built this great wealth and he's a part of a town and a community, but we don't find any record of the covenants of God or the law of God. So we know that's right about where it fits. And Job kind of follows this general outline. I want to give you kind of a general outline so we know what we're working from. In the first two chapters of Job, Job is tested. We're given this unbelievable view behind the scenes of what's taking place in heaven. And there's this moment where God is, there's these folks coming and they're getting an audience with God. And so the angels are there and Satan, the enemy, uh, comes before God. And they have this conversation about God, who he is, and why people worship him. And so Satan's saying the only people, the only reason people worship you is because you bless them and they gi- you give them a reason to worship you, not because of who you are, but because of what you do for them. And so God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And he says something about Job and affirms it. And it's something we see here in the first verse. It says that there was a man in the country of us named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God, turned away from evil And then it says he had seven sons and three daughters. And then it goes on to tell us all about his estate. And so he comes before God and Satan says, and God says, have you you thought about Job? He's upright, he's wealthy, but he will not abandon his faith. And so Satan says, well, let me test him. Let me bring my hand against him. And God says that you can test him, you can bring suffering to him, but you cannot take his life, his life, his soul, it belongs to me. And so through those first two chapters, Job is tested and he loses everything. And we'll get into that in a moment. And then after he loses everything and he's sitting in the midst of all of that suffering and all of that loss, that's when his friends come and over uh, the next giant chunk of chapters, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37, you have this discourse that's happening between uh, between these five different people. You have Job, you have the three friends who show up first, and then a younger guy who shows up later. And they spend a great time debating about what has happened and why it's happening. And then in, verse thir- in chapter 38, excuse me, God speaks and gives a clear word to Job, and he has the final say on Job's life. So that's kind of the general overview of what's happening in Job. And so this morning, as we fly over it, we're going to fly over from about 30,000 feet, and we look down on the story, there's some important truths that I want you to go home with today, four truths that we learned from God's word from here in the book of Job. Here's the first one. Bad things happen to God's people. Bad things happen to God's people. Now, one of the great questions of philosophy, one of the great questions asked when when God and the idea of God is being opposed is, well, if God's so good, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? And especially, why do bad things happen to good people? I think there is the great frustration. Why do good things happen to bad people? But the one we struggle with even more is why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the Bible answers that pretty plainly. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says that there is none righteous, no, not one. The problem with the question is it's built on a bad presupposition. There are no good people. The Bible says that bad things don't happen to good people because there are no good people. The bad things are happening to unrighteous people. So then you might ask, well, But the Bible also says that if I'm in God, in Christ, I am righteous. 
So I'm no longer unrighteous. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that there's this great exchange that takes place. That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That if I am in Christ, that his righteousness has been imputed or credited to me. So then the question becomes, well, well, then why do bad things happen to righteous people? And so then that's where we get into the book of Job. So we're starting to ask, how could Job, who was so faithful, suffer in this way? See, there's some people who teach that faith in God will insulate you from suffering. And on the flip side, there are people that say that, that if you are suffering, it's because you have a lack of faith. You don't believe hard enough. And I just want to tell you flat out this morning that that is false. It's heresy. It's not found in the Bible. If you are suffering this morning, there is a variety of, re- variety of reasons why you might be suffering. But I can tell you it is not always tied to the fact you're not suffering just because you didn't believe hard enough. And I'm telling you this morning, just because you believe hard enough doesn't mean that suffering is never going to come your way. There is no magic formula or secret prayer that is going to guard you from life's troubles. There are many promises that are made to us as believers in the Bible, but an easy earthly life is not one of them. Just look at Job. It says there in the first verse, it says that he is blameless and upright. He was the most righteous person and the most wealthy person in his community. He was a man of of high moral integrity, and he was also a person of high wealth and success. So he was clearly had the, the blessings of earthly possessions. He also was exhibiting great faith in his character and through his integrity, and yet this suffering has come upon him. It also says that he feared God. To fear God means to follow God. He worshiped God. He served God. He obeyed God, but he still suffered. And so we ask this question a lot ourselves. We say, God, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good Christian. I'm doing, I'm not perfect, but I'm good and I'm being faithful. Why would you let me suffer like this, God? And we need only only to look to God's son. Jesus was the most righteous person who's ever lived. And yet he suffered in ways greater than any person has ever suffered. And if Jesus was going to suffer on this earth and in this life, What on earth makes us think that we're going to get a pass from that suffering? So we have to understand that in the same way that Jesus suffered, we are going to suffer, but we are going to suffer for a reason. I want to point out two things about this suffering. Bad things happen to God's people, and I want to acknowledge that the bad things can be really bad. Really bad. He loses everything. He loses his employees. He loses his land. He loses his assets. He he loses his children. All ten of his kids die. He loses his health. His body in chapter 2 is absolutely falling apart and is ravaged with disease and with illness. It is one devastating tragedy after another. And if any of you have already read Job in your Bible reading plan, reading those first two chapters, it is like being in a boxing match. It is one sucker punch after another. It's just Job, it comes in waves. I don't know if you've ever gone to the beach and had this experience where you're out playing in the waves or maybe when you were a kid and you just had that one wave that got you when you weren't looking and it knocks you down and you tumble and then by the time you finally get up and catch your breath, whammo, here comes the next one. And then you get up and then it's just one after the other and you just feel like if I could just catch my breath. And doesn't life feel that way sometimes? 
that it is like, man, one comes, and then you get up and you breathe, and there comes the next, and there I breathe again, and boy, I just can't seem to get any traction. And this is where Job was, report after report of devastating tragedy. The suffering that Christians experience in this life is not diet suffering. We tend to think that if I'm a believer, of course I'm going to suffer, but it's going to be like JV suffering. Just like he's going to take a little of the edge off. Like I might get a flat tire, but the car's not going to break all the way down. I might have an unexpected bill, but I'm not going to go bankrupt. I, I may get a sore throat or a headache, but I'm not going to get this terrible disease. But the Bible says, and God makes very clear that that's just not it. There are going to be times in this life when you feel like you can't catch your breath. You are going to feel helpless. And we're going to find out that that's actually a good place to be. Because it's in that helplessness that we see God. So the bad things can be really bad. But here's the good news. The bad things only happen if God permits them. See, Job knows what's happening to him, but he doesn't know why it's happening. And it's this... This thing that he wrestles with, in Job, we get a peek behind the curtain. The book of Job allows us into the throne room of God, and we hear this conversation between God and Satan. So we know that it is Satan that's ultimately bringing these devastating sufferings upon the life of Job. But we also have to wrestle with the fact that it's God who is allowing Satan to do this. But this teaches us some important things under this banner of suffering that we're talking about. It teaches us that God is sovereign in all things. He is on the throne. Everyone reports to him. Even Satan can do nothing without his permission. As you read through Job, there's a title for God that comes up over and over. 31 times in the book of Job, God is referred to as the Almighty. He is the one who is in absolute control. It's a reminder that no matter what happens, how out of control our life feels, God is in control. But we also learn that God found no fault in Job. Remember, he said he's blameless. God found no fault in Job, but Satan did. God said Job was blameless. Satan says it's all conditional. Satan says, no, 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 no. You see him as blameless, but he's only blameless because you've given, all, you've given him all of these things. He doesn't want to lose these things, so he stays faithful to you. I promise you, if I take the stuff, he's going to abandon you because he's going to feel like you have abandoned him. And you have to understand that at the root of this, Satan's attack was really an attack on God, not just Job. It was, I'm attacking Job because you're not really worthy of the worship that Job is giving you. And if I take away the things that Job is worshiping you for, he will worship you no longer. And then ultimately and finally there we see that Satan can only touch God's people with God's permission and it happens for God's purposes. One of the verses that become very familiar and a lot of us like to try to share with people when they're going through difficult times is we always read Romans 8.28. We say, listen, we'll send it in an email, shoot it in a text. Say, listen, I know it's bad right now, but we know that all things work together for good. The good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But too often we share Romans 8.28. People are like, well, it doesn't feel good. I don't feel like it's working out for my good. But you can't have Romans 8.28 without Romans 8.29. Why and how is he working all of these things out for my good even when it feels so bad? Verse 29 says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. Everything God is doing in your life and using in your life, he is doing it to shape you into the image of Jesus. And that is a good 
anything. Whether he is using the difficulties of life or the blessings of life, anything he is using and doing to make us look more like Christ is a good thing and is something that we can welcome and embrace. So we can know that if this has come to me, it has come to me for a purpose. And the purpose is he's going to use this thing to shape me to look more and more like Jesus. If you are his, there is a purpose in this thing passing your way. So that's the first thing is that we've got to accept that bad things can happen and will happen to God's people. Now, here's number two. Bad theology does not ease our suffering. Now, what happens is Job is in all of this suffering and his friends find out. Now, the whole, the biggest chunk of Job is dedicated to this back and forth between Job, three of his friends, and then this other guy who shows up. Now, the friends get a bad rap because for chapter after chapter, they're just failing miserably. But we tend to lose sight of the fact that at the end of chapter 2, his friends actually do a good job for a week. Because they find out that Job's suffering. They're like, yo, did you hear what happened to Job? He's lost everything. This is horrible. We need to go take care of Job. So they get together. They come up with a plan. They go to where Job is. They find him sitting in a trash dump, scratching his sores. And it says that they come and they sit with him. They sit with him right in the middle of his mess. And it says for seven days they weep with him and they cry with him. And it says for seven days nobody says a word. And I'm telling you this morning, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to another believer who is walking through suffering is to sit with them in their suffering, is to be present in their mess. It's a beautiful seven days where they come as these friends who do love the Lord and really do love Job, and they just sit down in the dump with him, and they say, this is horrible, and we're weeping with you. The problem comes when they start talking. Some of you are like, this sounds familiar. I have these friends. I saw a funny cartoon the other day of two people sitting across the table from one another, and one of them was talking, and the person was saying, hearing you talk about your problems reminds me that I wanted to tell you all about my problems. Do any of you, you've had that friend. You don't have to point at him or anything. That's awkward. But the one where you sit down and they're like, well, listen, I, I know that's rough. Let me tell you about this thing I had happen in my life. Let me tell you about how I dealt with it. Let me tell you about me and me and me. And they come and they start trying to talk to Job and explain to him. Job starts asking these questions. Why is this happening to me? And all three of them have a different answer. Now, they do give him a lot of truth. But in the truth, there's mixed in all of this bad theology that actually doesn't work very well. And what, what I want to do is just kind of give you a quick summary of each one because we all have seen this happen. The first guy's name is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz is a moralist. He keeps looking at Job. Job's going, why is this happening to me? And Eliphaz, three different times, he does this speech three times. He says, it's because, listen, you may look like you're a good guy, but there's clearly some sin in your life. Bad things are happening because you've done some bad things. Whether we're seeing it or not, whether it's deep in your heart and you're hiding it, listen, bad things like this only happen to bad people, so you've clearly been a bad person. So you need to, in the, in the famous words of the internet that everyone likes to yell at each other, do better, Job, do better. If you do better, things would be better. 
And what he did is this moralistic thing that so many have embraced in our society that at the end of eternity there's this set of scales. And if you can give more stuff on the good side than on the bad side, life is going to tip in your favor and you'll be okay for eternity. But if you do more bad stuff than good stuff, it's going to tip over to the judgment side and God's going to bring some punishment your way. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And Job's going, no, I'm telling you, there is nothing that I did. If I do, I repent of it. That doesn't answer my question. And so three different times, a guy named Bildad takes a turn and jumps in and goes, no, 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 it's not that, it's this. And what he says is you just don't believe enough. You don't have enough faith, Job. If you would have more faith, things would get better. Now, Bildad is also a gem of a friend because in the middle of his his speeches, he thinks that this is going to help. Right in the middle of them, he goes, oh, yeah, and by the way, your 10 kids, they died because they were terrible sinners who partied too hard. Thanks, Bildad. Guess what? You're uninvited from Friendsgiving. Don't come and thank, don't, don't come in November. I, I don't want your, what on earth makes him think, this will help. I'll tell you why all your kids died. It's because they were so bad. And if you don't start believing more, God's going to continue to do this to you. And this is just the prosperity gospel in a different package from a different time. It's if you would have more faith, if you would believe bigger things about God, if you believe big, he's going to bless you big. But if you have small faith, then you're going to have small experiences and bad things are going to come your way. But it's nonsense because it's not what the Bible teaches. And then there's a third friend named Zophar, and he's got a bunch of platitudes. He's telling me, he keeps basically going like, hey, man, you just got to let go and let God. He's just like every bumper sticker he's ever read, he's sharing it. Like when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart, Job. Like, you just got to lean it. Listen, listen. He's going to turn these frowns upside down, right? It's going to turn your struggles into a stairway. Everything's going to be okay. And ultimately, it's all these empty platitudes, and he's saying stuff like this. Well, could have been worse, man. Just be thankful it wasn't worse. It's like, thank you? It's like going over to your friend's house, and their whole house just burned to the ground. It's like, well, at least you still have your car. You can sleep in there. But my house burned down. Like, what do you? That doesn't help me. And so they're talking, they're talking, they're talking. None of it's helping. All of their bad theology mixed in. My favorite is this guy, Elihu, chapter 32 through 37. He's this young, like, college kid who shows up, and he knows everything. This is your friend who has no kids, who has lots of parenting advice. Your friend who's never been married, who has marriage advice. And he shows up, he's like, listen up, you bunch of old geezers. What are you talking I'm sick of hearing you talk. I've got the answer. And then when you read it, you realize he just says the same stuff they all said and then takes twice as long to say it. And so they get to the end, and the problem is all of their theology at the end of the day centered around Job and not God. It was all about Job doing better, believing better. It was all about him and about why his life was affected this way. When the entire story is not about us, it's about him. It's about God. And so what we have to do is we have to, you have a a great pastor who is a great author who's writing a great book about this that's going to come out in May called Get Over Yourself. And it's this idea that the story of history is not about me. I'm not at the center of this. God is the center of the story, and I must find my satisfaction and identity completely in him. And so they, they keep going through this, and what happens is all of these empty words aren't doing anything to solve the problem. He's just as empty after all of this exchange as he was when he started. And it didn't bring him any hope. He's still just as desperate. But what I love is that he hasn't lost his hope. 
So what gave him hope? That brings us to the third thing. You can't know everything, but you can know one thing for certain. In the midst of these speeches, and it's in response to Bildad of all people in chapter 19, there is like this radiant bomb of hope that explodes over the course of three verses. In the midst of all this darkness and this exchange and all of this frustration, there is this outburst that Job has, and, it's, and it doesn't really fit in the rest of the exchange. It's this one moment of clarity that Job seems to have. Job chapter 19 and verse 25 He says this in response to Bildad. He says, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. In the midst of all of this exchange, Job's going, I don't know why this happened. I don't know why this happened. I don't know why this happened. But I do know this. I know that my Redeemer lives and that I will see my God. He believes that there's a Redeemer who will one day vindicate him and restore him, even though death and decay are clearly intervening. And these two sentences are packed with truth that I believe can give you great comfort and hope. The same hope that Job had, I believe you can have this morning. Look at these phrases here. He says, I know, I know. Job was confident that there was a redeemer who would one day again vindicate and restore him. And this morning, you know something that Job never knew in his lifetime. You know that this redeemer has a name. And you know that his name is Jesus. See, this Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus came back to life. This is what we spent the entirety of last weekend celebrating from Friday to Sunday. It's why the people of God gather every Sunday because Jesus is real, really real. And he really lived and he really died and he really came back to life. And we celebrate this every Sunday. And if it's not real and if it's not true, we are wasting our time. But we're not wasting our time because the story is true. And we do know that the gospel is exactly what the word proclaims it to be. And this same Jesus has ascended to heaven and he is coming again. And this same Jesus will forgive your sins and make you a new creation if you will repent and believe in the gospel. And you can know. See, that's the thing. Biblical Christianity is a no-so faith. All other faiths, when you talk to people about what eternity holds for them, about what eternity is going to look like in that faith, and you say, do you know what's going to happen? Almost always it ends at this phrase, I hope so. But the believer can know so. We don't hope that we're going to do enough to get to him because we know he's done enough because he did what we could not do. We could not get to him, so he came to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did for us what we could not do, which was satisfy the wrath of God's judgment against sin by dying as a sacrifice and substitute on the cross. So if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. And we can know that with certainty, just as Job knew. So I know, I know my Redeemer. He says, my. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, rest not content until by faith you can say, yes, I cast myself upon my living Lord and he is mine. Your parents' faith cannot save you. Your spouse's faith cannot save you. Faith is not inherited. It is not prayed upon you. 
It is not gifted to you by anyone except for the God who provides it. And so as bad as your wife is praying for you or your kids are praying for you or you are praying for your child, he must be your redeemer. He must be your Lord. He must be your savior. You must repent and believe. And so I want to ask you this morning boldly, is he your redeemer? Can you say he is mine? And he says, my redeemer lives. Jesus is alive. Death has been defeated. We sang about it so gloriously right before the message. Eternity is secured for those who put their faith in Christ alone. And because he lives, we will live forever in eternity if we know Christ. You are going to live forever somewhere. The question is, where are you going to live? And if you are in Christ, you will spend eternity in heaven. And that's what he says. He knows it. He says, I will see God. This is his great hope. You notice he doesn't say, I'm going to see my family. I'm going to see the saints of old. I'm going to see the pearly gates. I'm going to see the golden streets. No, he says, I'm going to see God. This is the sum and substance of heaven. This is the joyful hope of all believers that we will see him and that we will dwell with him for all eternity. I know my redeemer lives and I shall see him on that day and not as a stranger. Because I'm a child of God. So listen, you can't know why all these things are happening. But you can know one thing for certain. That in the midst of all of this suffering, you can know your Savior for certain. Who he is and one day where you will be. And here's the final and the fourth thing. You can't have all the answers. But you can have all of God. Over and over, Job keeps asking this question. He keeps making this request over and over. Just tell me what I did. He keeps looking to the heavens saying, tell me what I did. Tell me what I did and we'll get this thing fixed. And when God speaks, starting in chapter 38, he begins to share with him some unbelievable, glorious truths that we find great comfort in. But none of them are the answer to Job's primary question. Job lives his entire life. And as far as we know, according to God's word, he never understands completely on earth why this has happened to him. He knows nothing of the conversation that took place between God and Satan. He knows nothing of what was happening behind the scenes. But now God has spoken to him. And God is going to do something incredible in his life. See, you say, why doesn't God answer his question? Why isn't God answering my question? And the truth is this, God doesn't tell us what we want to know. He tells us what we need to know. See, our tendency in the book of Job is to jump from chapter 2 all the way to the last verses of chapter 42. And we like to go to the, the happy ending part of the story where God begins to restore everything back twofold. I'm giving you back your land and your livestock and here's some kids and I'm giving it all back, Job. But you know the greatest blessing starts before that? The blessing starts in chapter 38 because Job hears God speak. God speaks to him in the midst of his suffering. And I want to tell you that God has given you that gift this morning. God has spoken to you loud and clear. And he has spoken to you through his word. See, God has told us everything he wants us to know about himself. Anything he didn't want us to know, he has left out. But everything he wants us to know, he has included. His word is complete. It is true. It is whole. And all the time I hear people say, I want to hear God speak. I want to hear God speak. I feel like I can't hear God's voice. And I encourage people, and it's with a little bit of levity, but a whole lot of truth. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. 
Because God has spoken. And he has spoken into the midst of your suffering and throughout all of scriptures, he's reminding you over and over, this is past your way because it has a purpose. I know it feels like life is out of control, but I have control. You can trust me. There is a hope. There is a promise. There is a future. If we keep our eyes and ears on the word, he gives us something to keep our focus on. As soon as our focus turns to ourself, despair creeps in and steals our joy. But when our focus and attention is fixed on God who is worthy, he carries us through. He is with us in the suffering and brings us through because he has never left us and he will not forsake us. He's reminding Job of some important things. God reminds Job, we're not in control, but he is. He's reminding Job that Listen, we don't know everything, but God does. And ultimately, Job learns that we can't restore what has been lost, but he can. And God does bring restoration in a glorious way. He gives him back twofold. His livestock, twofold. All of his assets, twofold. All of the things that he lost. And some of you who did the Bible reading did the math, and you say, but I have a question. He did everything twofold, but he only got 10 kids at the end. Why didn't he get 20 kids? He lost 10. Why didn't he get 20? Because he did get 20. You see, those first 10 kids are in eternity. Remember, we believe that the soul is eternity. They're going to live forever somewhere. They're in eternity, and so God gave him 10 more kids. So Job ended up with 20 children. And he ends up living this full life. The last few verses there in the chapter, it says that he lived. It says Job died old and full of days. He lives this full life, but the most important thing isn't the full life he lived on earth. It's that he had eternal life, and he spent eternity with his creator. See, the most staggering verses in the whole book to me are found in chapter 1. Right in the midst of that first test of suffering that comes, starting in verse 21, Job, he worships and he sings this song of praise. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Pastor Garrett Kell, he, he summarized it so beautifully this way. So I want to share with you. He said, Job worshipped God when all was well. Job worshipped God when all was lost. Job worshipped God because he was worthy, not because he made life easy. And the question you have to ask this morning is, can you sing that song of praise in the midst of your suffering? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He is worthy no matter what I've gained or no matter what I've lost. As long as I have him, I am whole and complete. And if this morning you cannot sing that because you're saying, listen, the Lord gave, but the Lord took away, so I cannot bless his name. What that says this morning is your hope is in what has been lost not in who God is. And to truly follow the God of the Bible, to truly follow Jesus Christ, he must be our everything. Our satisfaction, our fulfillment, he must be our all in all. He must be enough. And we must come to the place to where no matter what he brings or no matter what he takes, that we can still say, God, you are worthy because of who you are, not just because of what you do for me. So what does Job teach us? Believer, I want you to know that your sufferings are real and that God has designed them for a purpose. I, I get the visual sometimes of history because you can say, Josh, I get all you're saying. I can nod in agreement, but it doesn't feel that way this morning. Did any of you ever have anybody in your life who cross-stitched? Anybody? Do you know what this is? Do you know what, know what cross-stitching is? Anybody in the room? Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. 
Maybe you should have chosen a different illustration, but we're here. Some of you, so if you were ever maybe at your grandma's house, there was this wooden hoop that was over by the recliner. And it had a piece of fabric that was stretched over it, and she would turn the little screw on top to tighten it down. And it was usually half done because most people don't finish their cross stitches. They start them. Some of you may have gotten a cross stitch as a wedding gift. And you got this framed thing that they had worked so hard on, and they're smiling, and it's like a house. And it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you're like, thanks. And then you put it in the closet because it didn't match any of your stuff. But you're nice, so you get it out when they come over. Maybe it's a pillow. Now, the thing is, if any of you have ever seen one of these cross stitches, it's you're running this needle and thread through following a pattern, and ultimately it, it creates this beautiful, cohesive picture. But have you ever seen the backside of one of these things? It's an absolute mess. There is no way if I had a cross stitch with me right now that I could hold it up backwards, you would look at it and you'd be like, I don't know, a pony, a car, a house? I have no idea what that is. Because on the back, it just looks like this mess of tangled strings and thread. It's knots, there's dangling pieces, there's gaps and empty spaces, and none of it makes any sense. But when you turn it over, you can see the beauty of what has been stitched, what has been designed. And what I want you to understand is that God is stitching together the story of humanity. He's already written it. And he's above what he is stitching in this timeline. And from his side of eternity, he can see the picture that he has painted. And where every suffering, where every joy, where every hill, where every valley, he knows where every piece fits into the puzzle. But the problem for us sometimes can be as we're down here on earth looking up at the backside of the cross stitch. And you say, my piece of whatever this is that God is sewing together, it feels like a jumbled mess of tangles and knots and strings and emptiness. But what we have to understand is every knot and every tangle and every heartache and every hurt and every moment of suffering, it has a purpose in the plan of God. And we can know, listen, if what God has given me in this life is a knot and a tangled thread, if he is using it to sew together a story of redemption for the history of humanity, and this is the part he has chosen for me to play and what he is painting, I receive it because he is worthy, because I know he knows what's on the other side side and I know one day I will see him and not as a stranger. I will know as he knows and I will be able to see from the other side of eternity that God had a plan and a purpose and it was perfectly stitched together even when it didn't feel like it for me. See, your redeemer still lives. One day soon you will see your God. And this morning, if you came here looking for hope, this is the ultimate promise I want to give you because it's what Job clung to. Hope is not a feeling. Hope is a person. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And before I pray, I want to encourage you. Some of you this morning came, and you're hopeless and you're broken. Some of you, it's because you've put all of your hope in yourself. You've never put your hope in Christ. This morning, there are people here at this church that want to have a conversation with you about the gospel there's a care room out there in the lobby. And before you go home today, my hope is that you'd stop at that care room and tell one of them, say, I, I don't know Christ. I, I, I'm not a believer. I, my faith's in me. It's not, I don't have this whole thing figured out. Could you tell me what it means? 
to believe the gospel and they'll share the gospel with you and they'll have that conversation. Some of you, you may go, listen, I, I understand the gospel, but I feel like it's wave after wave after wave after wave and I just can't catch my breath. Is there somebody here who could pray with me? That care room, they would love to pray with you. But this morning in the quietness of this moment, my prayer is that you would be able to, for the first time, pray in a long time. God, you give, you take away, but blessed be your name. God, I know that there's a reason. I know that there's a purpose. God, I may never have all the answers, but I know I have you. And I can have all of you that you've shown me in your word. And so pray that prayer in your heart, and then we're going to enter into a time of worship. And maybe you can sing during this part of the service, unlike you could during the beginning part of the service. Because maybe God's cleared up some things in your heart and mind. God, I pray that in these moments that we would come to you humbly that we would come to you in repentance. God, I pray that where we've clung to earthly temporal things, where we've questioned you, that God, we would come back to you in repentance, that we would return in faith, that we would embrace the truth that you are in control. You are the almighty. And God, I do pray if there's any person in this place that they wouldn't go home today without having a real conversation with somebody about what the gospel is all about and how it can radically change their eternity if they'll repent and believe. God, you are worthy. You're worthy in our joys and in our sufferings. But God, together we can say and believe. Blessed be your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.